Revelation 6, 1 to 8. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse, its rider holding a pair of scales in its hand. Then I heard what sounded like the voice among the four living creatures say, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was falling close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. How fun is that, hey? Wow. Okay. Uh, so, uh, today, if you are a new guest with us, you, uh, you get a fun week. Um, we are in a series in Revelation, which is the very final book of the Bible, so you can kind of see right here at the end. Uh, and we are starting chapter six. For anybody who's ever read the book of Revelation, this is where people stop because it gets way too intense and way too crazy and confusing, and it's just mumbled and jumbled up. And if you're like a preacher or someone at a church who is going through Revelation, that's kind of the same thing. You'll go from one to five and you'll just skip right to 21, right? Because that's where all the goodness happens. Uh, we're not like that. We're a bit more stubborn. So we're going to try to trudge on through and uh, talk about some of the stuff that you just heard, which is straight up crazy pants. So we're going to try to make some sense of it and uh, have you guys feeling encouraged, not like people dying. Okay. This is what we're gonna talk about. So in order to do that, what we gotta do is we gotta go back to last week because we need to kind of keep this all into perspective. Last week, we did two chapters, chapters four and five. And if you guys remember, John shows up, he kind of sees this big giant door. Um, if you're not familiar with Revelation, it's like really old school, crazy pants poetry. It's like poetry on crack. That's basically what it is. So you see all of this stuff, it's very nuanced and it's a lot of imagery. It's a lot of weird imagery to try to make a point of something that's a bit further out from what we can see. That's the whole point of what this book's trying to do. So. John shows up, he sees this door. He walks through the door and he is in his poetic language in heaven, right? And he sees this massive, massive throne, right? It's kind of like a big chair that kings will go into and the whole idea of a throne is supposed to just imply uh, this is like central command. This is where all authority is. This is where people make decisions. Imagine that throne being what makes decisions for everything in the world. That's what it's trying to represent. So all of a sudden he's talking to this dude and this guy goes, haven't you heard that no one can open up this scroll? This scroll is the secret of all of history and it's the salvation of the world. No one can open it up. Everyone starts crying and bawling and it's, it's, it's a bad time until all of a sudden one person yells out, but do not cry, stop crying. 
The lion of Judah has come and he will open the scroll. So John hears that the person who is going to be on the throne will be a lion. And you can picture a lion, right? Maybe some of you are thinking Lion King, right? Aggressive, big old animals who are just like, just killing, right? That's what they do. They just murk stuff. So it's aggression, it's power, and that's how they gain their authority. So he hears lion, he hears lion, he looks to the throne, and what does he see? It's very different from what he heard. He heard the lion of Judah, but what he sees is a lamb. He sees a little lamb. And not just any regular lamb, it's a lamb that was slain. And it's supposed to be this kind of countercultural pushback that what the Bible is saying is the way that you gain authority is not through power, is not through violence, is not through aggression, but it's self-sacrifice. It's giving yourself up. It's taking the hit. It's absorbing the pain. It's a very different way for you to live your life. And that's what it's saying in four to five. Okay, chapters four and five, that is the message. The way that Jesus operates with power in the world is not through aggression and violence, it's through self-sacrifice. So now that's all kind of set for us. And then we get to this. This and this text is uh, known kind of all over the place as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is kind of what this has always been talked about. It's this future event where these four gnarly horses are gonna come out and all of these horrible things are gonna happen to the world. And this is something we don't want to look forward to. This is kind of what we're thinking of. So all of a sudden, this, this lamb opens up this seal with all of the history and this random horse comes out. This is what it says, 6-1. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. The very first thing that John sees go out is a white horse. The image of uh, the colors are all gonna be very important. White is a symbol of conquering or of victory. So whenever a Caesar or a king would come back into the city, they would have white palm branches and that was the color of victory. So all of a sudden, this, this white horse pops out and they know somebody has won something. Somebody is going to conquer something. And that word conquer uh, in Greek is nikeo. Nikeo, which is where for majority of you probably got something Nike on. That's where that comes from. The word Nike, conquering. It's victory, that's the whole image of it. So the very first image, you get this one horse comes out ablazing and somebody goes, something is about to go down. The second one that comes out, verse three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. Now this is, Really crazy stuff. And we're gonna get into it, not right now, in just a little bit. But the red is really, really important. For the Romans, they had uh, a lot of gods, right? If you watch the movie Hercules, you got like a bunch of different gods. That's kind of Greek culture. Romans adopted the same thing, except for they named their gods after planets. And they had a god of war, right? Some of you are probably going, I played that game. No, you didn't, okay? So in, with the Romans, they had a god of war. Their god of war was represented from Mars. Now, what color is Mars? Red. So now we're kind of getting the picture. So the very thing that we are trying to see here is that this red horse is telling us war. 
That's kind of the point of this. Okay, third one. Uh, you get this black horse. It runs out. Uh, verse five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked to behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. This kind of sounds random and really, really weird. But the whole imagery here is talking about greed and famine. People are not allowed to eat and cannot eat because they're being basically stolen from, from the people who are supplying all of this stuff. Greed is keeping people from eating. It's kind of the same thing that we talked about last week, that people's actual sinfulness is keeping people from living. That's the image that's going on. And the last one is the fourth rider. When you open the fourth seal, verse seven, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. It's crazy. This whole thing's crazy because it seems like you're getting two very different answers. Four and five says that Jesus has this whole implication of, of the way that he has power and authority, not by violence, not through aggression, not by killing, not by any of that stuff, but by self-sacrifice, by nonviolence. That's what we see from Jesus on the cross. He doesn't hurt anyone. He is the one who is in fact hurt. He doesn't punish anyone. He was the one who was in fact punished. And now this gives us a whole different image of what is going on. So how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of any of the stuff that's going on? I remember being in the seventh grade. Seventh grade's a big year, right? You start to kind of think girls aren't that gross, you know? You figure out what kind of haircut you're gonna go with for the next like three years. Like this is, it's a big year. And uh, at that point, you also wanna just show your dominance over other human beings, which is what I did, right? And uh, in seventh grade, there was this kid named Larry. He was this young Filipino kid, uh, just like everybody else. His, uh, his Nexopia was flip under X boy with a one. So if you have any Filipino friends growing up, they probably had the same one, which is the different arrangement anyways. Um, you know, they're all, all their emails are like flip X boy X number one Naruto or whatever. Anyway, so, um, so that's Larry. So I, I saw Larry and I was like, dude, Larry, um, you know what? We're gonna fight each other. And so in grade seven, what you did is you only had small little windows where people weren't supervising you. So the bell rings for lunch and in seventh grade, I don't know if this is what your thing was, but in seventh grade, they make you line up outside the door. So me and my whole class are lining up outside the door, waiting for our teacher to open the door because she was always late. She was always eating popcorn. I don't know why she was eating popcorn, but she loved it, right? So we're waiting for her as she's trying to get the grease off her hands or something, I don't know. And we're in the lineup and all of a sudden, Larry looks at me and he gives me that look where I'm like, all right, I need to dominate. So we did what any uh, young boys do. We linked fingers, right? We interdigit fingers. And you're going, what? Wait. So uh, we, we locked fingers like this and we started pushing up against one another, right? So whoever's more manly is gonna win this, this debaucherous act, what we're doing right now, right? So obviously, because of how uh, physically imposing I am, I was winning. And, uh, and all of a sudden, what began to happen? The door swung open. My teacher and her popcorn were right there and uh, people started to file in. So as soon as Larry, uh, and this is what's crazy about Larry, I saw him again like four years later in high school and he had a different name. 
And I was like, was that me? Was that him? What's going on? His name was like weird. It was like X or something. Like it was strange. Anyways, side note. Me and Larry are fighting. The door swings open. Teacher is there. And so Larry goes what any regular human being does, not me. He lets up. We're about to enter the class. We have to learn. Education is important. So he lets go. And uh, me, I'm not that smart. I just keep giving her, right? I'm like, dominance. This is what I'm looking for. So Larry falls down. And because we're in a line, it was like when you lined up uh, dominoes. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, Larry tips over. And Larry hits Beth. And Beth hit Liz. And Liz hits Tim. And Tim hits Rachel. And I'm like, oh, Lord, this is not what I meant to happen. And everyone's falling all over. Until, and this is the worst part about it, until the very first person in the line um, was a kid in our class uh, who had a disability. He was the last one to tip over and uh, he was just, he was down for the count. And, uh, and this is in front of my teacher and her popcorn and uh, she looks at him and she's like, this is not good. You can't, you can't do this. Who was who in charge of this? And, uh, and because I was still in like dumb male dominance mode, there was me, the only one not tipped over in this long line of fallen individuals, right? And so she knew it's him because he's completely physically imposing. And so she goes and she grabs me and she takes me to the principal's office. And at that point, I go in there and I, I know when you look at me, you're like, wow, like that dude's really tough. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I went into the office and my principal's there and she was like trying to be all nice and I freaked out. I'm like, I was framed. It wasn't me. It was Larry or whatever the heck his name is. Flip underscore boy X12. Like, I don't know what his name is. It was him. And she did one of the rudest things that this principal could ever do. She called my mom. And, uh, and my mom, my mom, my mom uh, gets me from the office and takes me right home. And now, like, let's just be really clear. I come from an ethnic background, okay? Don't judge me for having a Latin mom, okay? They do things a bit different than the white people, right? So um, when I got home, my mom uh, looked at me straight up. And some of you guys are like, what does this have to do with horses? Just wait. <laughs> Get home, and uh, my mom, in classic Latin fashion, um, she looks at me and she gives me a choice. Right, she gives me an option, she goes, so the belt or the spoon? <laughs> so uh, if any of you guys, right, I'm looking at my more ethnic friends in the crowd here, I always choose the spoon, okay? And uh, so, and it's like a weird mental game because it's like you chose it, so you're kind of like accepted. Anyways, it was some weird military tactics. Uh, and then that goes down. I get the punishment for my crime, for being stupid, and, and that, makes, that makes sense to us, right? Like, that makes sense. I made a mistake. I did something stupid that resulted in somebody else being hurt, and I needed punishment for said thing. That, like, that makes sense to us. And so what we begin to do is we look at something like this and we go, okay, stuff is happening to people, whether that's death and famine and war and pestilence and all this different stuff that we read here. And we go, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense because it's like, yeah, we screwed up. So it should be kind of like a one-time, like this, this doesn't make sense. But it actually really does. 
I want you to notice that as we go through all of these stories of these four different horsemen, God doesn't do anything. God doesn't do anything. That's really important for us to notice. He just stops himself from doing something. And the most clear image that we get of what happens is with that second horse, right? When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. And look at what it says. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So all that person did was take away protection. So God doesn't kill anyone. Let's be very clear about this. The rider does not kill anyone. Let's be very clear about that. Who kills people? People kill people. All God did was take his hand away and said, okay. Now that's weird to us. Because then you would automatically say, like, that's wrong, isn't that? Like, that's, that's wrong. Like, this, this, these whole scenarios make sense. Like, if, as an example, if I had a, um, a daughter at some point, and my daughter's greatest desire was to run out on the street, that's dumb. I would grab her, I'd bring her back to the sidewalk, and I would say, what is wrong with you? And my consequence in that moment for that one mistake is this one action. But then what else makes sense to us? Me as a young kid, um, I was stupid. And uh, I remember going and I, my grandma was doing laundry and she'd be ironing some clothes, right? And this is probably a similar story for a majority of us. My grandma has the iron out, it's hot, it's warm. And I look at it and I'm like, something inside of me just says, Touch it, right? I don't know what it is. Touch that hot piece of metal. I need to, right? And so I go and I'm trying to reach at it and she smacks my hands away. No, stop it. It's bad. And I go again, right? And she just smacks me. Stop it. Stop doing, you're dumb. Stop. It's not gonna, stop. I go again. She's like, no. Fourth time, I'm like, I'm going. What does she do? Go for it. <laughs> Let's see what happens, right? And what happens? I put my fingers to the dumb iron and heat does this stupid thing where it tricks you for like a second. You're like, this is, oh my gosh, right? And I start crying and I'm crying and I'm crying and I'm crying. What did I do? I made the same mistake over and over and over and over, and that's not a one-time thing. What was her consequence for me? Listen, we have to, this is the most important point of all of this. What is her consequence for me? Her consequence to me is giving me exactly what I want. Her consequence for me is giving me exactly what I want. And so then you go, Okay, that also makes sense to me in that illustration. But there's no way God works like that. There's no way he works like that until you realize that he does. If you go to Romans chapter one, one of the craziest ideas is when God brings judgment to people, he doesn't do it by war. He doesn't do it by famine. He does not kill individuals. How does he 
judge people. If you go through Romans chapter one, you're gonna see three words that are the scariest words in the history of life. Three words. Gave them up. Gave them up. Listen to what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They're just doing the complete opposite of what God wants them to do over and over and over and over again. And how does God respond? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up he gave them up to what? He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. There's something about Jesus showing up that creates the appearance of everything that resists him. Imagine if I came with a massive army wanting to overtake another territory. What am I probably gonna see from the opposing kingdom? I'm probably going to see the manifestation of their resistance. I'm gonna see the gates are locked. I'm gonna see archers in the top of this fortress or whatever and, and people who are, are looking to kill me with cannons and there's warriors inside. I'm seeing the manifestation of resistance to me coming in. It's the same way. God shows up. He is the one who everyone's just crying about and so joyous and they're worshiping and he's opening up this thing that we are longing for. And what's the very first thing to show up? Four instances of the manifestation of resistance against the lamb. Famine, death, war, and conquering. These are things that he does not approve of and yet they show up. And we constantly make it about this thing over and over and over and over again. Look at what's happening in the future. The apocalypse is gonna happen years and years and years and years and years from now. That's what this is talking about. until you begin to realize the four horsemen of the apocalypse is not something that happens then. It's something that's happening now. God taking his hand away. And what do people get themselves into? Fighting with one another. Think about the wars Think about the genocides. The 19th century began with a genocide. The last century ended with a genocide. And right in the middle of all of it, there was a genocide. Hitler killed six million. Stalin killed even more Russians. Mao killed even more Chinese. 
Why? Because that's the heart of people. It is terrifying to think that if we are given whatever we want to do, how scary this world actually begins to look. And God looks at this and he's guys, stop, stop. Why do you keep doing this over and over and over again? Why do you keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again? And he tries and he brings people and he says, teach them, teach them about the right way of living. Teach them the countercultural way of you actually living your life. Go, go. And what does the world keep doing? It keeps rejecting and rejecting and rejecting. And the only way that God responds to us in that action is it seems like us as humanity is basically a drug addict. I've had to work with multiple families who have gone through their kids having addictions with drugs. And it always goes in the same rhythm. It goes, we're gonna help them and we're gonna help them and we're gonna help them over and over and over and over and over again. And then in an instant, maybe the hundredth time down the line, everybody ends up reacting the exact same way. And what do they do? Okay, if that's what you wanna do, go for it. They've tried over and over and over and over again to the point where they've tried everything and their final conclusion is, hopefully, we're just gonna let them do what they want because when they feel the consequences of their own desires, maybe they won't desire it anymore. That's what just happened. Maybe I gotta stop protecting them from everything that's going on. Maybe I gotta just put my hands away and let them do whatever they wanna do and give them what they desire so that finally when they see the consequences of that thing, they don't actually desire that anymore. That's what that is. Four seals open up, four horsemen come out and it's pandemonium. And God is still looking for a way to bless humanity. That's crazy. Constant rejection. And you look around the world and you try to make sense of it. That's what this is. How do I make sense of the things that when I went to Haiti, I saw? How do I make sense of all the things that I constantly hear around the world? Right, and then seal five becomes really interesting because as soon as that fifth seal opens, it gives us a whole different picture. Verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe, white, victory, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be completed who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And the next thing after all four of these examples is all the people who believe in Jesus who have died. There's so many of those around the world. 
right? There's these articles that 130 countries persecute Christians around the world today, right now. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people who believe the exact same things that you do, who love the same God that you do, and are pushing it to a level where it actually might cost them their life. And they say, I'm still in. I'm still in. I talked about this maybe like a year ago when I watched this movie called Silence. It's the worst movie. Don't ever watch it because it's actually amazing. It's an incredible movie, but don't watch it because you're gonna hate your whole life after you watch this. You watch it and it's about these two Christian missionaries that go to Japan to save one of their mentors and they heard that he had rejected the faith and they're like, no, we're gonna go save him and they go. And by the time the movie goes along, they get captured And one of the people, one of the Japanese elders in one of these villages gets captured. And the Japanese elder actually lets them escape and they get out. And this one elder is facing the consequences of all of this escape. And they look to him and the the choice that they give him, this is crazy, the choice they give this man is all we have here is a little plaque of Jesus. We're gonna put it on the floor. And in order for you not to die, all you have to do is step on it. That's all you gotta do, just step on it. And he refuses. He says, no, I, I can't do that. I go, no, just, like, don't, doesn't this make sense to you? Just step on it or you're going to die. And he refuses. He doesn't do it over and over and over again. And what do they do? They string him up to a cross and they put him right by the waves on the seashore and hour after hour after hour, the waves just hit him over and over and over again. And we go, that's crazy. That's today. It's everywhere. There's conquering, there's famine, there's war, there's death. There's people dying for their faith. And the reaction of all of this is in seal number six, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. After you have war, after you have famine, after you have conquering, after you have death, after you have seen these martyrs, that last, the sixth thing that appears is that all of the cosmos react. Everything reacts. Everything is shaped by what's happening and what is going on. Everything changes and shifts. Everything's different now. I know the language is kind of crazy, but that's all it's basically trying to say. Everything has changed. Everything has. And then, it's almost kind of like John has directed this whole thing. He gets you to a place where emotionally you are just dropping and you're dropping and you're dropping 
and you're dropping and you're dropping six times. And then all of a sudden there's this weird, awkward, random interlude in the middle of the book. And we get chapter seven and seven breaks off. And it says this crazy thing. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or set against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had given them power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And it begins to list off basically 12 different tribes of 12,000 people each. It's a lot, a lot of crazy stuff. And it's a lot of things we have to get through. Basically what it says is that there's 144,000 people in the end that will be saved. 144,000. You're like, what? That is crazy. Am I one of them? Please, you know? That's what I get to. But you're not supposed to take that number literally. It's not just 144,000, right? Let's go back to the first day. First day we ever did Revelation, we talked about a bunch of numbers, right? There's a bunch of different numbers. There was five, there was four, there was seven. Seven was a big number. 10 was a big number. What was 10? Completeness, right? What was 12? It was the people of God. So now you have 144,000. Where did the 12 come from? Okay, the 12 came from the tribes of Israel and it came from the 12 apostles. Tribes of Israel, the apostles. 12 times 12, 144. Okay, so that's all of the people of God. And then what was the number of completeness? 10. And so if you keep multiplying by 10, is that meaning it's more and more and more complete? Probably. Now you're beginning to make sense of all of what these numbers are trying to do. It's not saying 144,000. It's saying the utmost and the most complete number of all the people of God are in front of the lamb who was slain, who died on this cross, who was resurrected again. And look at what we begin to see. And this is beautiful. I hope you see this. Because this, this one text rejects all that's happening in the world right now says this in seven, verse nine. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Listen, listen to this. From every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That in the end of all of this, you get the perfect picture that's so powerful for today. And what this is saying is that a racist's hell is going to be heaven. A racist's hell is going to be heaven because every ethnicity, every language, every tribe, every skin color will be represented when God unveils who were finally his. And you look at our current situation in the world and you go, why can't we just understand that? 
Why can we not understand that? Think about your high schools. Think about how many really stupid comments you guys make because of skin pigment. Put it in those terms and it sounds really, really silly. God takes that seriously. Different cultures, different ethnicities are beautiful. When you go to France and you eat their cheese, you're like, God bless this, right? You go to a place like Mexico and you eat their food and you're like, this is incredible. You go to a place like Africa and you see their hospitality and the way they love people and how warm they are to outsiders. You go, why are we not more like this? You go to places like Japan and you go, the technological advances in this country are astonishing. Every single place has its beauty. Every single place has its thing that you look at and you should just honor and respect. And God does that by bringing all of those people together. Now there's one more thing that I wanna bring up and it's in chapter eight. Actually, one more thing. He brings all these people out and he sees all these individuals and he says this in verse 19, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And listen how beautiful this line is and I hope this is our encouragement and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Man, if you're sitting there and you're looking at your life and you're going, why did this thing happen? Why did this thing happen? Why did this thing happen? Your natural reaction is to push back. Your natural reaction is to get upset and angry and frustrated and maybe you wanna blame God and you know what, for a season that's okay. But what God's whole plan is, is listen, I'm taking my hand away so they feel the consequences of their own actions. And we're feeling that right now. Because in the end, I, I want them to know what they desire is not what they need to desire. And what's the whole goal? The whole goal for him is that I want my people to understand. I want them to actually go and get it. And in the end of all of this, Every tear in their eye, I will wipe away. Every problem, I will undo. Every sin, I will erase. Every transgression, I will defeat. And that's the point. And the seventh seal, which is the very last thing that we're talking about in chapter eight, is this. And this is why it's really important for us. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Trumpets was kind of like this uh, instrument of judgment. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer and he was given much incense. It's kind of like a, a candle almost to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Basically, the seventh seal, when it opens up, the seventh, the, the final thing, the last shebang, the most important and powerful part of all of this, right? You always save the best to last. 
And what does it say is the best thing at the very end? What is the most powerful of all of these things? Death, powerful, famine, powerful, conquest, powerful. All of these things have power to them, but what's the most powerful of all of these things that shapes and moves history like nothing else does? What's the thing that gets to go to the throne? What's the thing that goes to ultimate authority like nothing else does? Prayer. The whole point of what we just read is one summary, one little line. The most powerful action you could ever do in your life to shape the course of human history is not by getting into politics, is not by getting an incredible job or being a great influencer or a great leader. You know, the most powerful thing you can do to shape human history is pray. And that's what he leaves you with. The most important thing you can do as a follower of Jesus to shape human history is pray. Father, we thank you for our time here that you would just reveal to us all of what this was. And I know this was a bit of a different night and not regularly what we might expect and maybe it was a bit more intense or different or whatever. But I just pray that that last thing, that last little tidbit is just lodged into our minds when everything else happens when all of these massive and powerful things, like the main thing you're telling us is the most important thing we can do to shape everything around us is just the prayers that we send to you. I hope that gives us a deeper respect for prayer. I hope that allows us to really see what, what it is that we actually get the chance to do. It's not a begrudging thing. And it can just kind of set our whole life when we go like, okay, I guess I'll pray or I don't really want to pray and go, you're giving up the most powerful thing you could ever be a part of. I pray that we would come to love that, that we would learn to practice the presence of being with you, and that we would understand that if we really want to change the cultures around us and be so countercultural, and that everybody else desires this, but all I want is you, the most important thing I can do is get down on my knees and pray. So I hope and I pray that that would just change the hearts of these students here. That this city is never the same because of their influence with them. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen.